This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Peter Jack Rainbird. Peter Jack Rainbird is a solo guitarist whose music evokes sounds that would seem to require a full symphony. He plays a vintage electric guitar with an assembly of handmade pedals to create uniquely powerful emotional landscapes in music. With Sounds True, Peter Jack Rainbird has released a brand new studio album called Unravel, the Extended Suites. In Unravel, he carries listeners on a sublime exploration of sound and stillness, ideal for yoga, bodywork, meditation, or simply for deep relaxation and unwinding. Peter Jack Rainbird will also be a featured presenter at this year's Wake Up Festival in Estes Park, Colorado. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Peter Jack Rainbird and I spoke about the unusual sound of his music and how it was born from interacting in public spaces with people, architecture, and nature. We talked about the process of finding one's gift, activating it, and expressing it. And finally, we listened to two excerpts from the new album Unravel, Ariel and Crystalline City. Now, before we move to my conversation with Peter Jack Rainbird, I want you to listen to a short excerpt from the first track of Unravel so you can get a feel yourself for the unusual sound of Peter Jack Rainbird's music. This is an excerpt from a track called Signals. Thank you. 
And that's just a brief excerpt to give you a sense of the unusual sound of the guitar music of Peter Jack Rainbird. Welcome, Peter Jack. I want to begin by talking with you a little bit about your process of making music. And to begin, help us understand you took a hiatus, actually, from being a musician. Tell us a little bit what went on during that hiatus and then your emergence creating the type of music we hear on Unravel. Well, I took the hiatus because I think for a lot of people, when we've been involved in any aspect of our lives for around a decade, there comes a point when we need to take stock of that and reconsider uh, the weight of that and what the next step will be. So I had been involved in music and live music and touring and making records for about 10 years. And I decided to step away from that. So I came to the west coast of Canada and I took a hiatus whereby I I didn't play music. I didn't uh, tell anybody I played music. I kept that part of my life really silent. And I just needed to let it breathe and and let it decide whether it wanted me to go back. So I think we decide we're either going to step back into that game and it can't be the same or we're just going to walk away. And so it was an interesting time where you, you just sort of surrender. I had surrendered myself to whatever the decision would be and that I would accept that and move upon that. And uh, so after that sort of two years, I didn't give myself a set of time. I, I just let it go. And then after two years, it just started to emerge back out. And But it was in a way that it hadn't done before. Before my world was more to do with kind of rock and roll. And uh, I love that. I was raised on that. But then the music of Unravel started to emerge itself. And before, um, the way I crafted music was um, often a solitary process by myself, writing, recrafting working out pieces in private and then presenting that to the world. But with Unravel, I just decided to go out into the world, into cities, onto the islands, and just play for people, uh, not wanting anything from them. And I would just play for hours and hours on end. And I'd find these beautiful spots wherever they were. And so rather than trying to craft the pieces in a very personal uh, space, I decided to make it a very public experience. And so the process of playing it live began to inform its own evolution. And then the music just informed itself. And, and so I did that for probably a couple of years. And it's been the most extraordinary experience of my life has, has been that. So rather than before, I was very good at, rather than pushing to make something happen, like making this record or going on this tour or making this thing happen. I sort of let that go. And then rather than pushing to make something, I started being pulled into making something happen and being pulled into participating in events and and just trying to find the most generous posture to take. How can I shock myself with how much I can give? and uh, And also shock myself with how willing I am to receive. And so that has started this kind of extraordinary experience, which has 
now leading to all these incredible events and people. It sounds in a sense that your music after the break that you took, the two-year break, has come more from an interactive or interpersonal space. You're interacting with the people who are listening in some way and then also the outdoor setting. I mean, would you say that's true? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would often be asked about um, being an artist and and, uh, was I an uh, independent artist? And I would think about that term, independent artist, and I'd think of all the people that were involved in what I was doing, whether they were helping to get me to where I wanted to play or the many friends and families that would host me. And I decided that I wasn't an independent artist. I was an interdependent artist. And that was because I was. it was important to me to deliver that gift to the world in a way that uh, wasn't convenient, it wasn't comfortable, it wasn't easy. You know, you've got equipment, you're dragging it around. And I wasn't necessarily looking for locations that were highly populated, but there was some kind of um, uh, apex of architecture, civic engineering, and then nature. It would often be this apex where human architecture and culture met the architecture uh, of nature. And so I would try and find these, uh, these points and then, and then play from that, that place. And, uh, yeah, it was just, it's been extraordinary meeting people. And, and I just feel that that's my job and that the people that want to participate and want to get involved will sort of show up and you just have to trust that. And, and, to not try and do everybody else's job. Like, I'm the musician, that's my job, and, and everyone else will. And also, it's the place where if I'm going to inspire people, that's, that's the place it happens. And so if I'm in that place as often as possible, hopefully other people will meet me in that place. And, and they have and, and continue to. So, yeah, um, you get to meet people that you would never necessarily meet in one's own social circles uh, from all manner of different classes and religions or beliefs or uh, social structures. It's been incredible, yeah. Now, you use this very interesting phrase, going from pushing in your life to letting yourself be pulled. And I'd love to know more what that experience is like for you, what it feels like to be pulled. How do you know you're being pulled? In any given situation. How you, yeah, how do you know you're being pulled? Because it'll, it's not effortless. It, it's definitely effortful, but full in that you're, you're being, or my experience has been that it comes from when I have, 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 have done everything I possibly can to create the most... Um, generous musical position, uh, so to speak. So I'll be playing, um, and it's like you, you don't have anything in mind for anybody. You, you're not trying to get anything from anybody or, or from the environment. You're just trying to expand the experience of the environment for people and oneself. So before, I, you know, you, you would be kind of, you know, you'd have a five-point power presentation plan in your own mind. You know, I'm going to do this. I'm going to meet that person. And then they're hopefully going to decide this because I'm going to do this. And then we can go here and do that. And, and it was, 
there really wasn't a blueprint for it at all. There was just, I'm going to do this. This is what I do. And this is the best place for me. And so hopefully that would then pull me into these experiences. And what does that feel like? Um, it just feels like a very intelligent, uh, joyful, um, expansive place. And it, just there's a lot of serendipity. There's a lot of coincidence that just shows up. And what's interesting is when we talk about it, it's as though we can only really talk around it. We're just dancing around that thing, that stuff. We can't really put our finger on it. And I don't think we really want to. We just enjoy this dance and, and try and be as, as, as effective as we can in dancing with it. And, and then that starts to kind of reveal itself as one's life and experiences. So. I want to understand a little bit more about this inner posture, if you will, that you're taking. You mentioned giving with your full generosity and also receiving in a certain kind of way. So I'm curious to know more about that, the giving and receiving. Okay. Yeah, so um, I would often have these conversations with people where I'd be out playing somewhere and the weather was not conducive in any way. Either... um, you know, there was a strong wind or it was cold. Like I would play throughout the entire year, even if it was snowing, raining, I didn't care. Uh, it was, I would just be in this very ecstatic place. And um, I started to realize people would often ask me, why are you out here? Look at the weather. Like, what are you doing? And I started to realize that there was a barometer inside of me that had nothing to do with the external circumstances. And I realized that a lot of people are completely preoccupied with external circumstances and what I call the weather of one's life. And the weather will never be perfect. Like the conditions will never be perfect because they're actually perfect all the time. Just like the weather, it's constantly changing. And the moment we think it's perfect is the moment that it changes. So there has to be some other kind of barometer that is dictating our own conduct, our own conditions, and the way we choose to operate. So, uh, you know, it would be this joke of, like, I just don't want to talk about the weather. I'm just not interested in the weather. You know, there's another kind of barometer, and that's what I'm interested in. And so uh, if I was finding myself making choices based on the weather, based on circumstances external to myself, I knew I wasn't in the right place. But um, there's also, uh, one is often referred to as being somewhat eccentric, too. Because, again, people are looking externally, like, why are you doing this? Why are you out here? You know, uh, shouldn't you be at home doing something, you know, something else? I always thought it was funny when someone would say, why are you here? There's nobody else here. And my response would be like, well, you're here. (laughs) (laughs) So I can't be the only crazy person that's decided to come out. Um, so the pulling was definitely from an interior, you know, it's like an inside job. You know, you ever watch those great bank heist movies, whenever it's done well, it's always an inside job. And so, um, uh, there would be this term my friends and I would use, which was, we call it a safe breaker move. 
which is whenever you see the the bank heist and then there's the person and they're they're dialing in the numbers on the safe and they've got all the numbers and they've got like the little stethoscope up against the the door. Have you ever noticed when they dial in the first numbers, they're the big, easy numbers? You know, they they spin the dial and it's like, they spin it three or four times. But the safe breaker move are those last finite gestures. They can be really subtle shifts, a few degrees on the compass, you know, one or two digits on the dial. And then we're in. We've cracked the safe. And that safe is an internal safe. And what's housed inside that is the wealth of one's own gifts and one's own resources and really tapping into that and then not embracing those gifts but actually releasing them and releasing them into the world in whatever unique configuration you choose that to be. So that's what it feels like. And my process of going and playing constantly in a sort of very ritualistic fashion was dialing that in literally dialing it in every time because sometimes it would change you know it it needed a little something else sometimes i'd play for six or seven hours sometimes just three or four and uh it would be okay there it is and uh so it served me as much as it did anybody else you just you're just trying to get i mean that's the purpose of playing music is you're just trying to share something with another human being you're trying to convey something to another human being and and uh you do everything you can to to kind of, to bring that about. Yeah. Now, I want to just make sure that our listeners have a good visual of you playing in some of these outdoor spaces for potentially mm-hmm. six or seven hours. Do you have your mm-hmm. guitar case open? I mean, are you asking people to donate money? What's the setting? Okay, so um, the first thing is there needs to be architecture. And so that would be either in the form of a gazebo, traditionally. I have this, uh, whether they're in cities or more rural settings or um, uh, in a park or, or on a beach boardwalk or something like that. Um, I don't know what that is, but I, I think it's something to do with cultural expectation. That when we see an event that is occurring within an architectural structure, whether that's a main stage at a festival or in a gazebo, whatever it is, even when you go to the market, you know, the stall has its little architecture. And it's somehow trying to show a sense of containment. This is the container, and it's being delivered from the container outside. So if you were to come along and see me playing, I would say about 70% of the time there would be no guitar case open for, for offerings or anything like that. So what I was doing was I was challenging people's, again, cultural expectation. I would be standing there. I've got an electric guitar, um, a few pedals, uh, a little power pack. It's all kind of a nice, tight little rig that happens. And you, I would be playing, and then people would have money, and they'd be wanting to give it to me or share it. And, and there's nothing. They're looking around me for it. And there's nothing there, and I'm just smiling at them. And, and they look confused because they're, they want to fulfill their part in that cultural exchange. They feel like you're offering something. They're appreciating it, and they want to show that gratitude in a way that they can immediately in that moment. And it wasn't always about that financial exchange. I've heard some of the most extraordinary stories of my life from people, from playing. They would come up and open themselves in a way, and share some of the most extraordinary intimate stories of their lives. And, and we'd never met before. 
And so that was a very rewarding experience in that feeling like the music is is coming from a similar territory. So if you had seen me playing, I'd just be standing there playing, and then people would just choose to engage in the music, or maybe it would just brush past them and they'd carry on walking. Um, and I didn't even have any intention on making a CD. I just decided I wanted it to be this experience in the moment for people to experience, and, and that was it. But then I just started getting harassed a lot <laughs> in a very kind way, like, would you please make a CD? We'd like to take this home. And so uh, eventually that, that came about. And then once that CD was there, it seemed like a natural evolution that I would then share that with people when I was playing. So if I were playing and I had CDs with me, I would have them just to the, like, uh, off to the side of where I was playing, not right in front of me. It was up to people to, if, if they felt compelled, they would, they would come up and they would engage in conversation. That was the general experience. Yeah. It was just interesting challenging people's cultural expectation because not only they're also seeing a guy with you know long hair playing an electric guitar and the cultural expectation in North America is for rock music when you see that. But if you're not playing that, there's, a, there's the, the back of the, the cultural reference part of the brain is going, I have no reference for this, what's happening? And, and so that was always exciting too, to see people reevaluate their expectation. And your new album, Unravel, were all the songs composed in this situation where you were acting as an interdependent artist? <laughs> yes, completely, 100%. So that was the, the, the alchemic process was completely to do, it had to do with everybody. It was about every single person that walked by or stopped and listened, all participated in, in that process. So it was and has been very much a reflection on, on the environment. There are themes throughout Unravel, but when it's performed live, those themes do, um, there's improvisation and spontaneity within, within the track too, because I'm, respect, I'm, I'm responding to my environment, to the experiences I'm having with people. But they were, uh, that was it also. I had certain creative parameters. I decided that the pieces would only be exactly how I performed them for the record and that I would only use a certain amount of equipment. And all of that equipment had to be under a certain size and weight because, because I'm touring a lot, because I'm in airplanes a lot. I wanted to make sure that... Um, everything, I could fly with everything, and it, it went under my luggage limit for everything. So if I wanted to try and put something cool in the case, like some equipment that would make it sound extra fancy, if it tipped it overweight, I wouldn't take it. So what ended up happening was I started pushing away a lot of the whistles and bells and started to really distill the sound into a very simple signal chain. And then from that, the melodies and the music started to reveal themselves. Now, I want to give our listeners a taste of Unravel, and we're going to listen to a song called Ariel. But before we do, maybe you can introduce this song and say a little bit about what you think is the distinctive feature of the sound that you've created for Unravel. Gosh. Well, Unravel is 
the second track off of Unravel. Sorry, Ariel is the second track off of Unravel. It started. It became emblematic of the whole album. It's the, and that's through the melodic and the sonic qualities that it has. Um, it would be the song that I would find myself humming a lot when I when I was not playing, and it was the song that people responded so warmly towards. So, so that's it. I, I don't know how else to describe it, really. <laughs> okay, let's take a listen. This is Ariel from the new CD from Peter Jack Rainbird, Unravel.
Peter Jack, that song is so awesomely beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> so unbelievably beautiful. Thank you. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's not often that I get to listen to it, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, uh, we had an amazing recording session for those in Vancouver with Adam Samuels um, being our, our chief engineer on that. And um, actually, Adam Samuels is an interesting character. I met him about 10 years ago, and we're about the same age. And I'd wanted to work with him, and it took a decade for us to get into the room together. And I'm, I'm so glad that that um, has happened for this record, because um, cause Adam and I share have a shared lineage in a lot of the musicians that we've worked with in the past. And so um, it's really nice to see us kind of come together on this one. So, yeah. Now the guitar sound, I'm presuming that's created through the, the pedals, that you mentioned, yeah. that's very unusual. And I'm wondering, had you heard another musician play something like that and you were like, oh, that's what I like, I'm going to imitate that in some sense? Or did this just come from inside you somewhere? Um, I don't actually listen to that much music. Um, I actually don't have a, a device that has any music on it, like an, an iPod or anything. Um, and, and it's not because I don't love music. I, I adore it, you know. It's, uh, but, and um, one of the things I did during the hiatus was I also decided to not listen to music in that time. And um, I'm very fortunate that I have a couple of uh, incredible pedal guys that make incredible um, guitar pedals. And then they um, they share those with me. So, in a way, part of the sonics that are being created are they're not being made anywhere else because there's only one of those pedals that exists, and a lot of those pedals are in my chain, my signal chain. Um, yeah, and um, it's really important to me that the whole signal chain, that every part of it is is absolutely like the best of what it can be. You know, because that's, you know, that's my voice in the world. That's my, the way I, I sort of express myself. So, uh, but it's very simple when you see what's there, when you see what's actually, what I'm carrying with me. It's not enormous, elaborate amounts of equipment, but, um, yeah. So the pedal is being operated by your foot, obviously. It's a pedal. <laughs> Okay, and it's so, a pedal, exactly. I call it the gas pedal, but it's actually technically what's called a volume pedal. So, um, just to get a bit geeky uh, for all the uh, train spotters that might be listening, because um, is there's um, there's several stages of volume from the instrument to the amplifier. There's volume on the guitar itself. Every single pedal that it goes through has its own volume setting. There's the volume on what's actually the volume pedal, which you see me using a lot. And then, of course, there's the volume on the amp. Now, the space between what the volume is at and what it's capable of, so let's just say you've got it turned to 7, but it can go to 10, that space is technically called headroom. And when you um, manipulate that space, 
you can find what are called um, resonating fields. And they're frequencies which are not necessarily loud in terms of volume, but they do carry with them the qualities of resonance. So I just sort of became obsessed with the principles of these various stages of volume and and what color could be expressed uh, and what statement could be made with these very simple techniques. But if I just, I, I, I guess I'm kind of obsessive in my nature. And so, um, yeah, that's sort of where it came from. It just started to emerge out of the technical exploration of these various stages of volume. And then, um, yeah, um, I just find, I mean, when I first heard music, really heard it, I was around 13 years old, I guess. And I stumbled across my parents' record collection that was stored in the attic. And I remember climbing the stairs of the attic into this, the lightlessness of the attic and, and gently sweeping the air for the um, cord that was attached to the light bulb. And catching the string and wrapping it around my finger and then pulling the cord and then this bare 100-watt light bulb just flooded the room with light. And my everything was like an overexposed photograph. And slowly the, the, um, the aperture of my eye started to regain focus. And suddenly what was before me was like a photograph in developer when photo- photographers would put their, their, their film through uh, uh, the old school way. And, and, and the, the image in front of me in the loft as it slowly started to expose itself, as the, my eyes started to focus on what was in front of me, was hundreds, if not thousands, of vinyl records that my parents had collected for years and years. And at that point, I was, I was lost, you know. That was it. I was gone. My sister had a small portable 45 record player, you know, 45 singles, and she never saw that again. I basically requisitioned her record player. And what I became fascinated with was not just music, but sound itself. And what is this invisible force that is filling the room and changes everything? Like, what is that? And uh, the joke in my family was that all of our rooms were carpeted except for Peter Jack's room because I had vinyl flooring. Mm -hmm. Because you'd open the bedroom door and the floor was always covered in records. And so um, uh, it's sort of a combination of a more recent exploration of technical elements of sound, like we're saying headroom and volume, but then also just from being a boy just being fascinated by sound as as an actual form in the universe really <laughs> so that's that's been my my investigation of the mystery has been through music and uh, so. now there's a, a description that I want to read to you of your music and it's described like this that Peter Jack Rainbird is a solo guitarist whose music evokes sounds that would seem to require a full symphony. I liked that. I thought that, in a way, summed <laughs> it up. 
I, well, what's, ha- when you, what's happening on the record is that's a live take. There's no multi-tracking. Like, that's, that's what you're hearing from me in that moment. There's, there's, no, there's no mixing really required um, in that it's just... And it's exactly like what happens in the performance. I'm, I'm, I'm playing a part, and then I'm, I'm looping that part, and I'm slowly building these melodies, and I'm... And, it's very it's a very generous description um my parents grew up on a sort of a heady mix of opera and motown um even our dogs were named after operas you know um we had three dogs one of them was called carmen one was called tosca and one was called butterfly and uh i often uh hear parts even though i can't read or write music i hear parts Classically, I hear symphonic arrangements. I'm not in any way Im- inviting the idea that my music is symphonic in that sense, but just I hear cellos, I hear violas, I hear French horns, you know, and and that's me trying to kind of find a way of expressing that with the guitar. So, uh, yeah. Now, when I first heard your music, I remember somebody at Sounds True started playing a track for me, saying, "Take a listen to this." I was like, "Is that a what instrument is that? I don't think I even said, is that a guitar? I think I said, what instrument is that? I couldn't even tell. Do you hear that from people? Even when I play live, people ask me that. They'll come up and say, is that a guitar? And, and it is. It's actually just a very standard issue. It's a 1965 Gibson Firebird, which is... Um, yeah, it's the... What's interesting, too, is I didn't even realize this, but my guitar and my amplifier and my motorcycle are all from 1965. (laughs) So I don't know if I have some kind of relationship with 1965, but um, it doesn't line up with anything in my life. But yeah, I'm just playing a guitar, electric guitar. Now, of course, I could talk more about where I feel your music transports the listener, but I'd be curious instead to hear you describe what kind of state of being, if you will, are you in when you're playing? I'm, compl- I'm pretty much gone. Like I, it's an interesting experience for me, but there's a di- big difference between playing in a civic space and from playing for an audience. Um, when I'm playing... I lose absolutely all concept or sense of my sort of physical environment. Like, I have no idea how long I've been playing for. Um, when I'd be playing outdoors, I would have no sense of what the temperature was of the atmosphere. You know, um, and so I even looked even more eccentric, I'm sure. You know, most people would be shivering or running for cover or... Um, or wrapping themselves up, and I would just be playing. And as soon as I would stop, Tammy, I would suddenly my hands would get cold, or suddenly I'd feel like um, the extreme heat from the sun, or um, I'd be like, "Oh my gosh, I'm hungry," or "Wow, I could wow, let me get some water. This is great." And so um, I had to sort of take care. I had to make sure I was taking care of myself in that regard. So when I play for an audience. Um, I'm really listening to the room. It doesn't. It's a balance between an internal and an external experience. Like I'm really just opening myself up so that I can hear the room, 
And then what I do my best to evoke is the sound of that room. So that's what keeps it unique for me every single time I play because it's completely unique to that audience and to where we are as a room, as a, as a group of people. So that's sort of what it feels like. It, it, I don't necessarily feel um, sort of ethereal or um, anything like that, or I definitely feel very real. The, any surface voices in my head or chatter completely disintegrate, for sure. And um, it, it, there's just a sweet openness just as, you know, inside. That's how it feels. Is there anything that you do intentionally to generate that state? Do you have to shift something inside? Oh, okay. Well, you mean before I play, before I step up? Yeah. Or, yeah, let's see. Well, certainly I'll I'll go and I'll set up my equipment, whether this is for an audience or for, you know, um, a, a civic space. And then I'll I'll walk away for five minutes. But that's because I'm changing hats. You know, I'm, I'm changing hats from being basically the roadie <laughs> and then I'm stepping back in and, and then I'm the musician. Um, but there's nothing ceremonial that occurs, um, not to my knowledge. I mean, one definitely invites The, the, there's definitely the invitation to being, um, to making oneself available to what wants to come through, and um, so I would definitely some usually within the process of playing, I'd, I'd sort of evoke the invitation of being open to what what wants to be expressed or heard. Um, I don't necessarily go in with a question or anything like that, like if I have a question about anything for myself. Um, usually if there is any inquiry on my part, it happens afterwards because when I, when I'm, when I come out, I'm in you know, one of the clearest spaces I can be. So, yeah. It's not like a, um, a meditation practice where somebody may have a series of steps, steps of preparation. It's, it's something else. Um, there's, there's not really that around it. Yeah. Now tell me about this title, Unravel, and what that oh, word okay. evokes for you. It seems to, it definitely fits for the record, and um, it came about as a title through finding the work of Ariel Malka, who is the artist whose work is is for the album cover and is also going to be in a series of videos and and things um i was looking for a topographic landscape of an enclave which <laughs> very specifically um the reason being that i um i was looking up what an enclave was geographically and i found that it's a it's a territory that is considered to be a haven, but that is surrounded by hostile by hostile territories. So it's um, so it can be an emotional. Uh, what I liked about this idea of an enclave was that it could be it's a geographical quality, but it also has 
an emotional and very physical quality to it as well. The idea that there could be potentially hostile territories around, but that within that enclave is actually a sanctuary and a haven within it. So I was looking for a topographic image of an enclave. And then through that process, I came across Ariel Malka's work. And his is like topographic landscapes, but that start... Topography is normally isolated rings that radiate out from peaks and troughs within the landscape to mark the altitude. But with Ariel's work, it's a single point, and that single point unravels. So imagine a spiraling black line that sort of spirals around, and then this landscape starts to emerge out of it. And I, it just naturally informed itself, like, oh, look at this landscape unraveling. And then I thought about the music I was doing and how it starts with a single note. And then that single note starts to unravel and then build this landscape. And I thought it was great how within Ariel's landscape, it's uh, this black line. And I thought of that like my guitar cable. It's a single signal that goes from the guitar and then it starts to build into this landscape. So, um, yeah, that, that's how... That's how, that's how the title Unravel came from the artwork of Ariel Malka. It was his work that inspired the title. And then it just fitted so naturally. It, it became the most natural choice to call it. When I hear the word, I think of some type of surrender process. Was that part of what you thought the meaning might imply? Oh, um, let's think. Well... I certainly felt that when I, as I would perform the pieces, when I would finish them, there definitely was, uh, yeah, this, there was an unraveling that occurred, whether it's one's own thoughts or on a physical level or an emotional level, you just, and also what's happened is with the pieces of music, the structure of them isn't necessarily like a traditional song culturally we're, we have a certain expectation with music where like oh this is the verse and here's the chorus and, and, and then the song is going to finish soon but because the pieces are quite long when you're listening to them you have to kind of let go of that expectation and that song structure in your mind and so once you let that go that's an unraveling in itself you just have to kind of surrender over to the music and uh I didn't know how long the pieces would be when I started writing them. They just informed themselves. So, um, yeah, I definitely find for myself I'm in a different state after I play. I'm definitely more <laughs> unraveled, absolutely. Let's listen to one more song from Unravel. This is Crystalline City. Do you want to introduce this at all, Peter Jack? The reason this is actually called Crystalline City is because when I started writing it, or when it started writing itself, however you want to call it, um, it, I literally would start to, not consciously visualize, but I would start to see a city in my mind, but that where all the buildings and all the streets and all the squares had this, were all made of crystal, and that they were translucent, they were completely transparent, sorry, that's the word I'm looking for. And, um, and whenever I play it, I sort of am reminded of that. And, and so in my mind, that's sort of what I see when I hear it. And so that became the title of the song. Let's listen. 
Another absolutely beautiful transport. Peter Jack. Thank you. Now, I know you're going to be with us at Sounds True's Wake Up Festival, August 20th to the 24th. You're going to be on stage. And one of the things that you and I talked about offline, if you will, is the humility, the paradox that it takes humility to actually get up on stage and be outrageous. And I'm wondering if you can talk about that. What do you see as the humility it takes to get up on stage and be big? To be, uh, to, <laughs> to be outrageous. Um, to me, humility is, is about bringing it. It's, humility isn't about a false modesty. And humility won't get you to the main stage. I mean, when I think about the most humble people of of the last, you know, few hundred years, if I were to think of, you know, Martin Luther King or uh, or Gandhi, for example, you know, they they really they really were, they brought it they brought it when they came in the room. You know, they weren't false or shy about it, and it's in a way. It's because you feel there's something that is emerging out of yourself that we feel compelled to share with people. And so we're trying to get ourselves out of the way and let that step forward. And I just think that when I think of individuals like that within every culture, that that humility is is really about recognizing one's own gift, whatever that is, activating it, and then delivering it to the world. Now, when I say the world, it could be the, you know, just with one's own world. And that can be your gifts within your place of employment, within when you walk into your home, when you walk through your community, when you go to the, you know, to the local market, whatever it is. But doing whatever it is that's required for that. And um, it's usually nothing like what we expect it will be. I'm sure that if one were to read the stories of those individuals, they would be astonishing. And 
I find it interesting how also it can sometimes be that those individuals have come from adversity, not that it's essential, but that they don't take their circumstances as the be-all and end-all of their life. And they've often transcended those circumstances. And they invite other people to do the same thing. Because, again, there's that barometer inside them which is dictating their conduct and the weather. And they're not worried about what's going on around them. But they do want to kind of let that part of themselves get cracked open and, and, and brought out into the world. Because that's where all the intelligence is. That's where all the excitement is. That's where all the enthusiasm is, is, is right there. And, and why would we not want to be there all the time? So being humble and, and being like, well, you know, I'm just doing my thing. You know, if someone else likes it, that's okay. I mean, really, come on. You want to get out into the world. You want to kind of be, you know, to to get out there and to be excited to share your life and your gifts with other people. I just think, to why deny why deny the gift that opportunity to to be revealed into the world because it recognizes that everything it needs and requires is right there all the time. It's just waiting to be just turned on. You know. Now I like this recognizing your gift, activating it, and then sharing it with other people. And now, yeah. now I might be able to language what I think your gift is, but I'd be curious to know here. You took these couple years off, and at a certain yeah. point, you recognized your gift. What was it that you recognized? I recognized that everything I needed or required for the gift to be delivered was right there. I didn't need to have a whole bunch of production. I didn't need to be working from some other place. I didn't need to have people that were not around me, around me, or I didn't need to deny the people that were around me their role in my life. And that's partly why I went out and played in these public spaces. It was all about my intention. I find it really interesting how when you look at a legal court of law and a spiritual court of law, they're both interested in the same thing. And they're only interested in one's intent, in a court of law, one can describe the circumstances of a situation that occurred, but those circumstances will be dismissed as, quite literally, circumstantial evidence. They're not interested. What they're interested in is the individual's intent behind what occurred. And I think the same thing occurs in a spiritual realm, if you want to call it that. That they're not interested in the circumstances of your life. They're interested in what one's intention was and what one's premeditation was. So therefore, if there's premeditation, the quality of the action has to have meditative qualities to it. Now, meditation can be whatever it wants to be. I mean, it could be that one wishes to be in isolation and be uh, go into an in- inner space. But also meditation is just to, to linger, to, to dwell on an idea, on a vision of what needs to occur, and then take action with that. And, and know that everything is right there. I mean, when I went out and played in all of these places, I was, um, you know, I didn't have a huge amount of equipment, you know, and I had to ask a lot of people for support. Um, but everybody got so excited about it that it just started to happen and inform itself. Does that make sense? It does. It does. And it leads me to my final question for you, Peter Jack. Go for it. I think there's something about you, and I'm going to use this word, that's kind of 
magical. I do. I think there's something kind of magical about you. And what I'd love to know is, for you, what do you think invites magic in your life? What invites magic? Like, I guess you have to believe in something to invite that thing in. So if there is a sense of that magic, then I would have to, by proxy, believe in that. And it's not just magic, but I think it's a sense of, when I see in others, is a sense of sorcery, you know, just like... Um, As well as chocolate, of course. As long as you're adding chocolate into the equation, that definitely makes my life better. <laughs> but um, if there's magic in my life, I think it's just... I really do... I, I like people a lot. I love people a lot. And I just... I see extraordinary gifts in people. And uh, I just do my best to celebrate those gifts. And... Um, I mean, life is an extraordinary adventure filled with incredible people and extraordinary magic. And if we're open to that, it just becomes part of our life and part of our experience. So, And it's not like that all the time, but it sure is like that a lot of the time. So. I've been speaking with Peter Jack Rainbird with Sounds True. Peter Jack has a new album called Unravel. Peter Jack will also be a featured performer at the Wake Up Festival, August 20th through the 24th in 2014 in Estes Park, Colorado. And you're all invited to come and join us. For more information, wakeupfestival.com. Peter Jack, lovely to be with you. I love hearing your spoken voice, and I literally do melt when I hear your music. I feel so proud that sounds true has been able to release this album with you, Unravel. I really do. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tammy. It's an absolute pleasure. I'm so thrilled and excited to be in Colorado so soon and get to share even more of the music and hear everybody's stories there. And I think we're going to have the most extraordinary time of our lives. So thank you for bringing me into your world. Soundstrue.com, many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.